Welcome to the Dystopian Republic. I am your host, Raul Guerrero. Our story for today begins on the afternoon of March 2nd, 2009. The shanty town that was Clemente rested its indigent anatomy over a pleasantly windy forest's shadow. Robbie the Fourth laid fatally beaten in his desiccating blood puddles and splatters. Hugging as one, Austin, Andre, Arlo, and Avery looked fixedly at him, his ex-animate self no taller than their ankles, feelings of power euphorized, their senses of touch, singing the praises of their triumph over their nefarious air of a foe. But then the blood they acquired from Robbie's demise hit them with the seriousness of what they participated in. The trophies that were their bloody clothes were also the smoking guns police could use to lock them away in the last cages they'll step into. The four wasted no time shoveling a hole perfect for secreting a man of Robbie's height and weight. That hole became the resting place for him and their bloody hoodies, sweats, liners, and tennies. Its slabbed dirt pointed out the undies keeping at bay their nudities. But to their fortune, Arlo fought in advance to take from Robbie the hundred he had in his wallet. That bill granted them the funds needed to replace the clothes they just buried. They purchased their new garments at a thrift store that was so used to having half-naked customers that they didn't bother to have a no-shirts, no-shoes, no-service policy, so long as their exposures weren't indecent. Their fresh sets of hoodies and khakis wiped their bodies clean of any evidence of their deadly handiwork. Hiding behind a burger joint's dumpster, the cousins Pinky swore not to talk about the murder or rat each other out. That promise directed their attention to the business of shutting up their kidnappers and Robbie's boys permanently. With a flip phone, Arlo stole in the store. Austin called some adult friends who leaped at the chance to make the two factions go away forever, such that they accepted her order free of charge. They returned home that evening, greeted Maya, ate baked potatoes with her, and slept in their sleeping bags as if the murder never happened. The dream Avery fell into trapped her in a wicked space where her worst memories and oldest fears tortured her until she shrieked awake. Her woe getting her cousins to comfort her, Arlo and Andre's touches chilled her nerves, whereas Austin's agitated them further. The next day, they awoke to zap them with panic-struck coverage of the violence that ravaged Bromelia City 
during the overnight hours. Their kidnappers were all machine-gunned in a tequila bar right at the strike of midnight. Moments later, Robbie's friends died the same way in a gentleman's club just down the street. Both parties died without knowing that Robbie had been killed hours earlier. Those massacres were two of the innumerable crimes that occurred on a night that would forever be known as the night Bromelia City went berserk. That period from sunset to sunrise forever changed the lives and psyches of millions, telling the media that Robbie has gone missing as the sun shined it to a close. His status as the heir apparent to the Brahmacalco chemical dynasty gave the authorities an incentive to spare no penny or hand in finding him. Howbeit, Robbie's riches didn't do much of anything to entice the public into helping out with the search. He used his gifted millions to record on video tours of his manor house, point-of-view drives in his Italian trident, meals at Bromelia's fanciest eateries, and escapades in the nation's most exclusive night spots. In addition, Robbie shot on photo his supercar collection, wine, library, hundred bundles, rifle armory, water park, and gold mint. The videos and photos caught him flapping his bills at the camera, shaming his viewers for being poor, smacking hookers up like dogs, pummeling homeless people, steering his fans to get-rich-quick schemes, and abusing his houseworkers. They won Robbie the fanfare of only his family, while everyone else reviled his vulgar greed, lack of respect, clinical narcissism, and unkind cruelty. It wasn't all that surprising that the police were the only ones doing everything conceivable to bring him home. At any rate, the cousins were quietly beside themselves with happiness now that there's virtually no chance their tracks will ever be uncovered. They could now rest a little easier knowing that baptism of fire was in their rear view mirror. And soon, Robbie became just another name in the national missing persons system. His case went cold after the heat surrounding it wore off to give other sensations their turn in the spotlight. The rest of 2009, entirety of 2010 and 2011, and first quadmester of 2012 saw the cousins mature into adults. From Austin to Avery, they worked after school and on the weekends at a meat market, suit retailer, electronic store, and doll shop. The minimum wages their jobs paid were enough for them and Maya to afford the rent of half a duplex, moving them 
out of a dirty slum and into a clean suburb. That move transferred them to a high school with more resources, cleaner facilities, better teachers, and nicer kids. The school's ranking at the national average was a world above the bottom of the barrel, the one they transferred out of, scrapped. Like their school, their popularity too rose from the bottom to the middle. A third of all kids liked them, a second didn't, and the last were indifferent. All but guaranteed to graduate and go on to college, the cousins celebrated at Sarpicho's, a ristorante at their place of work, the University of the Capital Shopping Center. They, Maya, and their new friends, Hull Ponce, Jilson Inerarity, Ray Madriz, and Swindon Garabay, spent the last two and a half years saving up for their dinner party. Designer wardrobes, cosmetics, private room, pasta, wine, desserts, and all. In the time that passed by, Maya's black lung disease worsened to the point that doctors advised she get a double lung transplant before her current elastic sacs and branching passages failed. Her inability to afford such a procedure limited her to inhale steroids and oral opioids. She never told her grandkids about her deteriorating health, hiding it by medicating to death her pain. The senior prom the 18s planned on attending was all they could talk about. The theme the cousins voted for, fashion show, made prom royalty well within their reach. Their closet contained clothes far sexier than the ones they're wearing presently. But what excited the cousins the most was having their friends as their respective prom dates. Hull shared Austin's ambitions in being a butcher and seafood merchant. Andre and Jilson aspired to be fashion designers and boutique shop owners. Arlo and Ray made it their lives as strives to own branches of the store they worked at. Avery and Swindon wanted to start and run their own doll line. Professional aims aside, the cousins' dates had a mutual love for producing and listening to rock and electronica music. With Sarpichos's nearing closing time, the party of nine closed the night toasting champagne to intimacy and prosperity. Their exit was stopped by news out of Clemente that city workers found bones, clothes, and a brick in a ditch they were digging up. The headline had the cousins stooling bricks harder than bowels overcome by dysentery. It took them back to when Austin sadistically beat Robbie down in a hail of brick bludgeons. Her beating showered mortification on her for doing it and her cousins for letting it happen. That headline was their first exposure to Robbie's death in over three years. 
it refissured ever so slightly the free rifts their hug after the killing patched shut. Asked by Maya if anything was wrong, the cousins hid their fear and shame away in complaints about the unseasonal cold, spiked drinks, and excess carbs making their bodies go haywire. Neither Maya nor their friends thought a thing of the breakout their bodies just had beyond it taking them off guard. Her sound sleep did nothing to ease the pressure straightening her grandkids' airwaves. The cousins genuinely thought they could take their killing of Robbie to their graves. It was a matter of when Robbie would be identified and not if he'd be. The hope they latched onto was that the cops wouldn't see them as people of interest. Their fingerprints, sweat, saliva, and hair made that hope all that kept them out of prison. The weeks, days, and hours leading up to prom drew their attention away from the news story that was sluggishly but steadily evolving. In that time's course, the cousins had their graduation photos in and out of gown taken. Their pearly white smiles radiated their optimism for the future, giving no hint of their forebodings deep inside. On prom night, they and their dates gothically suited and dressed in silked rubies, emeralds, diamonds, and sapphires. Maya snapped photos of the four couples, showing the adoration warming their embracing arms and robust heartbeats. The limbo ride leaked out of the cousins a fidgety worriness their dates assumed was their chronic anxiety shining through as it did from time to time. Faintly preoccupied by the news story, the cousins led their dates through a formal of French hors d'oeuvres, mingles with acquaintances, compliments concerning their attires, and dances that rolled and revolved. That formal culminated with Austin and Hull's coronations as prom queen and king, driving the losing girls and boys into cantankerous rages and fits that got them run out of campus. With the crownings now done, the eating, socializing, and dancing continued once more. In lightless classrooms, things got lovey-dovey between the four couples. Avery and Swindon went all out on their making out in the room where all the knitting happened. Arlo and Ray fondled, touched, and stripped each other naked in the computer lab. Andre and Jilson turned the home economics room into a hole ideal for having sex. And lastly, Austin and Hull laid on the floor of the woodshop room after their sex climaxed. Their sweaty, exhausted lay in the nude was barged in on by Austin's phone lighting up. To her annoyance, the call was from Upton C. Snarrows Jr., the man 
who led the group that took out Robbie's friends and the kidnappers he hired. Upton brittily told her he had horrible news about her and her cousins. His contacts just informed him that the cops identified the bones as being Robbie's, found that the hoodies and khakis matched those worn by the long-wanted hooded Robins, have the cousins as people of interest, and are in the process of picking them up. Upton elucidated to Austin that the window she and her cousins had to go missing on paper closed at sunrise. He arranged for them to meet with a van of his disappearers at a dark alley, but not without first doing away with their loves and Maya. His demands slipped Austin's phone off her hand, taking her to the brink of wailing out her eyes and heart. Her urgent need to tell her cousins the news she got kept her waterworks from waking Hull up and them from waking up Jilson, Ray, or Swindon. Cramped in a bathroom stall, that news and what Upton wanted them to do distressed them into calling him back to beg him to let them spare the people he wanted gone. Doubling down on his demands, he called Maya and their mates fickle cowards who turned on them in a heartbeat, which was what his family did to him and Marks when they learned of their illegal activities. Upton and Marks counted on their family the most for support, only for them to be the first to let him and her down. That stab in the back forced them to live off the grid, roaming the nights and sleeping out the days. His berate and reasoning behind it hit them worse than a race car crashing at full speed a concrete wall head-on. The cousins were well aware of the immense love he and his sister shared with their grandmother, Luvenia, since she took them in after their parents, Upton Sr. and Misha, were killed in a 2000 shootout with special weapons tacticians. Their love for Maya was the exact double of Upton and Marx's love for Luvenia, yet the attacks Luvenia's grandkids carried out as killers for hire were too much for their relationship to endure. It became clear to the cousins that the falling out Upton had with Luvenia will for sure be how their bond with Maya meets its end. The predicament they found themselves in left their emotions unsteady and ready to fall. Taking pity on their lowest of spirits, Upton offered to take them under his care, promising to be all that Maya was and so much more. His promise was sufficient in giving them the spines to do what he asked. The things Upton did for Austin were large in number, striking in scope, and went back to when they were both minors. Their long-distance affinity won them and her cousins many things and saved them from plights that could have taken their lives. 
those winds and saves were the food and water that nourished their mutual attachment. Their returns to their rooms were of no bother to the deep sleeps their other halves were in. Slowed down briefly by hesitation, their stomachs grew upset as their blazers and dresses came off. The cousins mouthed to their other halves that they were sorry, that they loved them, and that hopefully their next lives will meet under better circumstances. At that point in time, they stifled their partners' noses and mouths, cringing at the fraught fights they put up. Not saying a word or muttering a sound, the cousins suffocated them as hard as they physically could, pleading for them to quit fighting and pass on. Their pleas for them to hurry their deaths up took a full ten minutes to almost be answered. They tightly cuddled their loves' bodies, hyperventilating until their griefs were little more than depressed stupors. Pink in the face, red in the eyes, and in a humid sweat, the cousins put their clothes back on and left the school without telling anyone. As they got closer to home, the business of killing Maya re-injured their soft spots. Austin filled a syringe with an illicit cocktail of mercy-killing drugs. Her flicking of the needle shook her and her cousins uncontrollably. They lurched into Maya's room and saw her sleeping beautifully with the help of her oxygen concentrator. Their noiseless tiptoes over to her bedside downed a burst of all the times they had with her. Maya was their person to cry on whenever the night their parents died came up visually. She helped Austin get past the ordeal that scarred her in more ways than one, broke Andre out of the shyness that isolated him from everyone else, reined in on the unruliness that made Arlo a handful for others to deal with, and toughened Avery into standing up for herself in the face of cheats and dirtbags. Prior to retiring, Maya's mobile home in Ivyville, Pais del Carbone, was where her grandkids learned what the local school didn't have the funds to teach. They cooked flavorful dishes with meat and produce, kept their clothes clean and wholeless, cleaned and did work around the house, and cared for the toddlers in the factory's childcare room. But that was all in the past before they and Maya left Ivyville for Brumelia City. The years spent in the walls of the city's pessimism and nihilism did their work in turning the cousins into four of its products. They bitterly felt a version toward Maya for recklessly moving them into such an appalling place. That settled dislike snapped them into carrying on with the work Upton assigned them. Just as they were about to choke Maya out and mortally inject her, they discovered her relaxed muscles, whitened skin, cold temperature, and the black pus she coughed out. 
that discovery slammed the cousins into a state of utter shock. It was as though a chapter in their life had laid its life down in place of a new one that was mere seconds in age. The shock standing them still was mostly relief, having little in the way of sadness. Maya's spirit departed the earth, thinking of her grandkids as these big-hearted souls who were generous to a fault and had the world in front of them. Her pneumonic demise spared them the affliction of being why she met her end, but it also rusted to metal flakes the one chain link they all latched onto. Whatever hard feelings festered among the cousins, those resentments mattered less than any of the things Maya did for them. They looked past the mistreatment they gave and received from one another to honor her wish that they remain one for all future time. Now that Maya's time had come, the cousins no longer had a link to share. The syringe still in Austin's hand caused her to penitently and shakily stuff her mouth into her palm and drop to her knees. Andre tenderly came to her emotional aid, took the syringe, threw it under the bed, and enclasped her as lovingly as he caressed and gazed at her when the toy guitar regressed her mind to those morally corrupt hours. Although he and Arlo pitied her endlessly, Avery wasn't having a grain of it, seething at the compassion she never got any of when the boys helped Austin beat her cruelly. The ripped-to-shreds child in her blew her anger at the fullest possible blast. Avery irately poked fun at Austin for wallowing in her tearful pusillanimity, asking her where those tears of hers were when she babyishly cried in like manner. That got Austin to furiously wipe out her infirmity and raucously be at her feet in high dudgeon with Andre and Arlo a short way off in terms of their furies. Her cacodemonic look shook Avery's nerve fibers like fronds, yet was unsuccessful in eliciting one rapid toe and fro out of her spirit. It tensed Andre into calling Avery out for caring more about an instance from years ago than the severe regret Austin came seconds from having to live her life with. That prompted Arlo to say that it was so like Avery to hold grudges over stupid bull feces she brought upon herself. His comment suddenly broke out of her a sharp sibilance of temper, impelling her to caterwaul him, Austin, and Andre for making what they did to her seem less wounding than it really was. Taking it further, Andre argued that Avery deserved each and every strike and gibe that came her way. 
Austin spelled out how she blamed her for entering a situation that raised red flags the moment the sham director answered the phone. Moreover, she said that Avery called her a hussy genitalia who got what she was asking for, betting that her sicko tail took pleasure in the unbelievably despicable ways her exploiters compulsorily had with her. Stunned by her words, Avery looked in her innermost self, bringing out a harsh smirk that lay dormant there for a good while. She doubled down on her victim-blaming and slut-shaming, suggesting that Austin was always one to get her eggs off to her own pain and humiliation, often at the expense of her own loved ones. Calling Avery a lying brute, Austin couldn't believe she'd stand by such obscenities after all they've been through. Avery's racing veins verbalized her wish to let Austin have it measure for measure, skittishly storming over to her and smacking her snout. Austin's shriek sprang Andre and Arlo into action, resulting in the former being shoved to the floor and the latter giving Avery a blow to the back of her skull. Taken as a whole, the outrage in Andre and Arlo wasn't anywhere close to the ferocity provoked in Austin. Throbbed by Arlo's haymaker, Avery saw a squeezable gap betwixt the boys, her chance to evade the shades that were about to envelop over her all over again. Her run for it made a mere two feet before Austin threw her down, bouncing her face off the floor in the process. Punches sharper than knives rained on Avery in a stormy burst of cloud. Cumulatively, the strikes of the fist frantically flapping her exactly copied the hits that punished her for blaming and sharing Austin. Those blows ceased raining when Austin Andre and Arlo laid Avery's face upward and pinned her onto the curly-haired rug. Blood dripping out her bruised nose, the frenzy of rage in Austin raced the blood vessels of her short-winded stare at Avery, whose horrific bruises and blood-ecored face trapped her in a woeful pain too dolorous to cry noisily over. The dreadful pains burning Avery cracked her cousin's rages like glass from in its core to out its edge, holding them in extreme contempt for beating their own flesh and blood. A winded, silent moment took Austin, Andre, and Arlo to the thought that they really screwed up this time. Their losses of face beaded into their heads that their bond with Avery had undergone a change that could never be undone. They were now faced 
with a dark and unfortunate choice, spare Avery at the risk of dooming them all to life prison terms in their lonesomes, or kill her and break the big promise Maya had them swear on their lives to uphold. It was a damned if you do and damned if you don't situation the free had no one but themselves to blame for. The unhappiness and unpleasantness wasn't much weaker on Avery's end. Her pains were still stinging like angry bees, living off the raw sewage the cousinly bond had gone to. But in that wastewater, the highs and lows that persistently ravaged and mended her parents, aunts, and uncles guided her down memory lane. Everywhere she turned, shows of a freakish or fecal quality reared their nasty heads. Despite the fact that she and her cousins weren't personally harmed by their elders, the fighting and haranguing they saw or heard amongst them was every bit as impactful. Set side to side, the problems they had with each other were far less dire than the catastrophic hellscape that was the lifetime their elders spent in conjunction. Avery realized that Austin, Andre, and Arlo were the only three left in her world. She knew her cousins wouldn't, in her wildest dreams, dare play Maya false. The full picture of their situation put a price on Avery's morality that her cousins could readily afford. Avery felt that keeping her morals priceless wasn't worth rotting in a cage. That feeling commenced her one-way trip to a city named after a characteristic combination. The trip's initial climb deprived the stings in her skin of their sensations. Its climb to the crew's height stopped any new sharp ends from igniting her pain receptors. The trips hover at the optimum, dried out the lake that was her sorrow. Its descent transfigured her ecord blood mask into a reposeful entity. The trip's approach blanketed the flames of the grudge she held in an extinguishing desire to forgive. Its conclusion turned her frown on its head and ploddingly extended her hands out in need of a hug. At an absolute loss for words, the three were in complete and utter disbelief that she'd still be yearning for their love after everything they've done. Her newly acquired trust and affection preemptively showered them in the most sensual of remissions. Never once to look at a gifted horse in the mouth, they gently pulled her into the firmest, warmest, sincerest, and heaviest hug they've ever been a part of. Their embosom fully prepared them for their final goodbye to Maya and Bolt for freedom. Austin turned off the respirator, removed it from Maya's mouth, and hid it under the bed near where the syringe ended up. 
Arlo used baby wipes and small towels to clean her face of the pus that clotted her lungs' air sacs. Andre tucked her into bed and closed her eyes and mouth, making her exert an angel's peacefulness, and Avery diluged her body with flowers by the blanket, placing a gothic cross on her defunct ticker. Huddling with hands on their hearts, the cousins thanked Maya for entering, saving, and making their lives worth living, even in times where all seemed lost. They took solace in the fact that her pain was no more and hoped that her next life will have a better destiny. The cousins each kissed her forehead and said their last goodbye, mutely leaving as one. They strided to the alley Upton wanted them to go to with only the clothes they wore for prom, shivering over the cold, but more so the lives they were about to let go of. Then the arrival that shivered their weight came to be, beginning their disappearing process. They traveled 64 miles to the southwest, arriving at an old building of office suites near the La Cordillera de l'Est, La Gran Lanuda border. There, the cousins assumed the identities Upton spent the last 336 hours making for them. They respectively became Loretta Fonton, Myron Cleyin, Lamar Rayed, and Agnes Barnez, names based on two men and two women he held in extremely high regard. Loretta Cleyin, Myron Fonton, Lamar Barnez, and Agnes Rayed. The cousins took a profound liking to how we find their new names sounded in pronunciation, but they had no idea that Upton had ulterior motives for assigning them the names they were given, nor as to how historically significant the four people whom their names were based on were. They stripped naked and rested in tanning beds, browning their skin from a peachy ivory to a golden tan. Their heads of hair were dyed a daimondian black, replacing the grayish-brown they began life with. The makeup coating the cousins and the clothes they changed into completed their rebirths as regal elites. Their transformations now complete, they headed for Hornos Creek Airport, passed their new identities through security, and took an all-expenses-paid trip to a mountainous island in the Labrador Sea, known simply as Albaland, a sub-arctic cornucopia of cold wonders, tall mountains, cozy communities, and nefarious secrets. Back in Bromelia, a janitor found Swindon on the verge of dying as the sun rose. When police arrived, Hull, Jilson, and Ray were found as well, like her weak in breath and heartbeat. 
the cops called for life-saving assistance, sending the four to the critical care unit where their comatose fights for their lives would be fought. Talking to students and faculty, it became apparent to them that the cousins were the prime suspects as they were the last ones seen with the victims before they were found. That was enough for police to issue an all-points bulletin against the four of them. By nightfall, every Brumelian and their mother knew that the cousins were wanted, attempted murderers, unbelievably shocking every suburbanite who knew them, but not those who sought and engaged in conflict with them in the blocks. Law enforcement agencies from coast to valley were on high alert for any tips or leads regarding where those four may be, but little did they know that said quartet were already thousands of miles away from the Bromelian mainland, living their new lives in an estate high up in the Albalandic Mountains. The cousins served up and dined on venison steaks, wild rice, pinot noir, and sugar pie, selling up a storm about all the hiking, skiing, biking they're gonna do, and the new friends they're going to make as Loretta, Myron, Lamar, and Agnes. That dinner, beyond its good feelings, underscored their freedom from doubt that they can now live as one happy family. But as they'll find out in the coming years, no exemption from punishment comes without a price. And as fate would have it, that price they'll have to pay would be miles outside the realms of their imagination. And that, my dystopians, was The Unhooded. Thank you so much for your listening ears, and please be sure to share this show with everyone you know, and make sure they share it with everyone they know. Send me your questions and feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And I highly urge you to support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. Supporting the show ensures that its financial and creative autonomies are maximized. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another episode of The Dystopian Republic. <laughs>